brightening the world. But I want to get you up to speed. I, a couple of weeks ago, you saw some of these slides. I want to show you again, but they don't have all the animations. We're not going to take all the time necessary to go over them. But in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we had this passage. And the main thing we got out of it was be unified in mind, love, and soul. You also might remember this slide from a couple of weeks ago. And the emphasis was not to be selfish. You have Jesus, others, and yourself in that order. Then you can have joy. And then the next, remember this slide? You see the animation. Authentic humility was the title of the last message. And in order to have that, you have to change things. Watch this. Remember that? You have to put self at the bottom and others at the top. Be selfless. This all comes together in today's message, you'll see. Another slide, and it's a Christmas one, you remember this, from Peter Bailey, quote from the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And the quote is, all you can take with you is that which you've given away. I realize it's a movie, and I realize Christmas is gone past, well, maybe. So if I could get a couple of volunteers, in fact, uh, we have such a small number, why don't we, yeah, Dan will do it. There's a box. Dan has uh, in that box a couple of gifts from leadership that we wanted to give you last Sunday, but we're going to give them to you this Sunday. You're going to get a book and a bookmark. I don't know if you noticed, but this is the time of the year where, where people make an effort to make changes. We want to do better in 2022. Some of us just hope that 2022 is better than 2020 and 2021. But there are those that like to make New Year's resolutions. Some of us avoid it like the plague and we don't do that. We just make commitments. I saw some this morning coming here as I drove here. I think it was five ladies who obviously I've never seen them running on that path before. I go that same way every Sunday and Friday. I never see them running, but there they were running. They're, they've got a fitness thing they're, they're doing, so good for them. They were doing it in the, in the snow and the ice that's a little bit sketchy to walk on, and there they were. I hope they're still doing it however long their goal is, but I don't know. Not everybody sticks with it. I, my daughter-in-law works at, the, at a gym, a very large gym, and everybody is all hands on deck January through February because that's when the people that paid for their new memberships actually show up and then they drop off. But we wanted to be an encouragement to you in that some of us, when we start the new year, we start working on our financial stuff. Some, some of us start working on our taxes and, and we look at what we've done with the money that God's granted us. I don't know if you think of it that way, but I hope you do, that any money that I come into possession of I, is, is God's money. He blessed me with that. I'm a steward of it to do with it what pleases Him. That's the way I think. That's the way I want to think all the time, at least. <clears throat> and that will, if you can think like that, at least in my experience, it'll prevent you from using God's money on things he would never want that money used on. So we have this book, and in this book you can use it in your families as a devotional. You can take the family through it, maybe one section at a time, um, one week at a time, or however you choose to do it. But I would encourage you to let it launch you into being the kind of person that handles God's money in a way that's pleasing the Lord, to the Lord. That's what we hope that you will do with those books. And if you happen to be, uh, or you happen to know somebody who's not here, somebody that might be listening to this that's recorded in the future, we still have some books. We'll just let us know and we'll try to get a copy to your family. So I said Christmas is gone. It's passed. Well, let's see. I want to give you one more passage. Uh, look up behind me. Uh, you see uh, in verses 2 through 5, we, we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. And then 
I said one more. I'm going to give you another one. Then the next slide, you'll go to that one. He's doing a very good job getting, ahead, getting uh, where he's supposed to be. I'm the one that's off the page. Let me see where I am. There you go. I skipped a page on you. All right. So at the end of that last passage we went through, there was a therefore, and you can see it behind me what the therefore is there for. There's going to be another one today, by the way. But look at these other slides that are familiar to you. A couple weeks ago, we have this one. Authentic humility requires purpose, prioritizing, and selflessness. And authentic humility produces unity in mind, heart, and soul. We did all of that. Now I want to talk to you about something we haven't talked about, and I hope for you that it turns out to be a blessing. So let's talk about the day of epiphany. Well, it happens to be special because guess what? That's my birthday. But it didn't, it, it, I was a preemie, so it wasn't supposed to work out that, I think, that way. I think my mother wanted me to be born on Elvis's birthday, which didn't happen. So, by the way, uh, I want to show you a, a talent I have. Just pretend that my collar is flipped up. This one's buttoned. I'm not going to unbutton it for you. I have an Elvis invitation. Are you ready for this? Ready? Okay, I'll get Just pretend my collar's up. This is my Elvis invitation. You like that? Yeah, you thought I was going to bust a move, but I didn't. All right. So the day of Epiphany, I want to talk to you about it. That's the 12th day of Christmas. I don't know if you knew this. So if you count starting Christmas, you count the next day, there's 12 days of Christmas. And it ends, it's celebrated each year since we celebrate on December 25th, the birth of Christ. We also celebrate, some of us, when the wise men supposedly, and we don't even know if that's what that means, but Magi were wise people, but... They, we celebrate the time that they arrived at the home where Mary and Joseph were staying after the manger scene and found them with baby Jesus. And so that's the 12th day of Christmas. And you can see the dates. There's the 25th and the 6th. That's 12 days in between. You can do the math yourself. But I would like to talk about Webster's definition of epiphany. So here it is. And this is the third definition. It gets it away from the holiday celebration. Usually, a, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something, an intuitive grasp of reality through something, such as an event usually simple and striking, and an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. And you've used it that way. You know, when you, you suddenly you have this, usually it's associated with spiritual things. You have this epiphany. Maybe it's not even a spiritual thing for you in your history, but you have this moment where suddenly you realize something that you didn't know, and it was big. That's kind of what an epiphany is. So that's what the 12th day of Christmas is supposed to be symbolizing is that the Magi make it to baby Jesus and the realization of God in the flesh is right before them. That's an epiphany. That's big. What I'm hoping that happens uh, in the minds of Christians, sometimes when I get the privilege of preaching or teaching, is an epiphany. And I talk about this a lot because this needs to be in us. There's a word, repent. Are you familiar with it? It means change your mind. So repent means I change my mind. So an epiphany would be in a big way, not just a, a little bit. You know, you've probably heard some people say repent means turn around. That, that's the way we teach it to children because that's the way they can understand it. They can understand they're going this way, so turn around and go that way. That's, that's what they get. And in the Old Testament, there is a word for repent that means turn around. But in the New Testament, that word does not mean turn around, go the opposite direction. It means change your mind. It might be on something little. You might think, well, I'm supposed to give to God, you know, in, in a cheerful heart, so I just give what feels good to me. That's the right way. And you're at least giving to God, so that's good. But you need to change your mind because God 
explains a lot more than that. It's not just what feels good to you. It's what pleases the Lord. And you might want to read the Bible about what that says. And, and so you might have to change your mind. You're going this way, but maybe you need to go a little bit more towards God's direction and change a little bit, change your mind. It's not turning around and going the other way. I'm not going to give it all. No, it's changing your mind a little bit. But I'm hoping that sometimes that change your mind happens in such a way that it's an epiphany, that, whoa. And the reason why I hope that is because that's what's happened to me multiple times. It's happened over and over again where it's like, I did not know I was messing up so badly. I thought I was messing up just a little, but I was messing up badly. And I had epiphany, an epiphany I have to do a lot better than I'm doing. I didn't, I didn't have it figured out when I thought I did, and I'm a preacher. I should know better. So I have these epiphanies. And I hope that for you, you get to have that experience sometimes when you're reading the Bible, sometimes when you're sitting at a creek or out looking at the sound or saying a prayer alone quietly in your bedroom, or even as you're driving down the road and the Holy Spirit convicts you with a thought that pops in your head. I've got to do better. An epiphany, a big thing, life-changing. So, all right, I got things all out of order, JC. Just stay with me. Today, we pick up with our text, and this all comes together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, begins with, therefore. And you have to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, you'll see. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as it in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I've broken this up on the slide behind me into little pieces, at least in that first verse, so that we can take it piece by piece. So, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? I gave you all that. That's what all of that stuff was for in advance, including the Christmas and Epiphany piece. He says, my beloved. So, therefore, all that unity stuff, all that, you know, I want the church to be one in every way. Agree with each other. Get along. And by the way, we're doing that okay here. It's fine. Do we have some children that need help finding their place? Maybe somebody can help them. Thank you. I think they just got here and perfect. They've got guidance. And then after he says, therefore, he says, my beloved. I mean, that's an endearing thing. That's a, you know how when you say to someone, I love you. It's supposed to carry with it significant meaning, and it's supposed to have emotion with it. This is the same kind of thing there. So Paul, take it personally, is saying to the Philippians and to us, so people that I love. It would be best if we could take this as inspired words of God, and he is saying, remember I love you. That's why you're getting these words. That's why, that's why we're going through Philippians right now, because by the providence and sovereignty of God, it just works out. We're all together. We're going through this passage. He loves us. As you have always obeyed, so God sees us as obedient. Paul saw the Philippians as obedient. That's good to know. We all mess up, but it's good to know that God tries to see his Christian his followers, as obedient. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. It's one of those things we have to be reminded of sometimes. There was a group called the Swirling Eddies that uh, came out. Uh, They were were actually a band called Daniel Amos. Anybody heard of Daniel Amos? One person, maybe two. (laughs) The Swirling Eddies. Anybody heard of them? That was their next name. The Swirling Eddies, and I think it was in the 80s and 90s, they, the, the, what they were, Daniel Amos, the same band, they're basically scholars, theologians that 
were musically gifted. And I think their theology was probably better than their musical talents. But one of the songs that came out in one of their albums in the 90s was called Hide the Beer, the Pastor's Here. And that, that just stuck in my head because that's the way a lot of times people act. If they know that a Christian's walking in the room, they shape up. If they know the pastor's coming over, they might hide things. And that means they're probably doing things they shouldn't be doing in the first place. And so Paul says, you're obedient even you know, when I'm with you, but much more in my absence, because he's in prison. So he wants them to remain obedient even if nobody is over them watching what they're doing. Because we have a tendency to sometimes think we can sneak around and get away with stuff. If you're ever wondering, and we'll get to this piece in a little bit, if you're ever wondering why the world seems so warped right now, it, it shouldn't, it, I don't think it should take a rocket scientist to figure this out. We are spending an increasing amount of time soaking up bad information. A lot of people are just stuck to their phones and their tablets and their whatever screens, and they just they can't seem to get away from it. And they want to be in denial of the facts because they get colored facts on their social media, so that's their truth and their reality, and um, people are getting confused. And some people, and it's scary if you don't, no, but there's, there's dark stuff out there, very, very dark stuff out there. And some people don't seem to set boundaries for themselves, and they think because nobody's watching, nobody's going to know, they go places they should never go. Not, not just because they're Christian, but just as a, a human with morals, don't go there. But people are doing it increasingly so. And I don't think any of us would think this is going to be healthy for people's minds. So even in my absence, continue to be obedient. Verse 12, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I I wish we had more time, but we don't this morning. But there are whole doctrines that revolve around this idea that we don't get free will. And this is one of those passages where people like to launch off of it and say, see, It's God who does all the good that's in us. No, excuse me, if you pay attention at all to what we've been reading, Paul is encouraging us to behave. In absence and in this presence, behave. And the point of this last section is to remind us that it is the Holy Spirit that is in us that moves us to do what we're supposed to do, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are supposed to live our lives to please the Lord, and when we have that, those thoughts that come into our head when we are doing things we shouldn't be doing, these thoughts like, I shouldn't be doing this, that's not from you. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit that's indwelling in you, that moves you and tries to motivate you to do the right thing. The people that try to claim that we, this God, God's the only one. It's Him that does the good. It's Him that wills to do the good. It's only Him that does it. It's not, nothing to do with our own personal choices because we can't, you know, really do anything. Yes, we can. That's why we have the New Testament that instructs us on what we're supposed to be doing. If, if, it, if we have no choice that God's just going to move the puppet strings, why do we even need the New Testament? But I want to remind you of something that we talk about occasionally, and if the Lord's willing, maybe we'll talk about it in great detail sometime. But I want to talk about the Trinity. You might have seen the symbol that's kind of a universal symbol for the Trinity. I think it's kind of cool looking, where you've got these intertwined, what looks like could be ichthus, if you know what that means. And then here's another thing up behind me that can remind us of how complex the whole concept of the Trinity is. This is just one of many. There's a whole bunch of them that look like this and don't look like this that try to explain to us what the Trinity is like. Some people try to, you know, water it down a little bit, not for the intention of making it unbiblical, but for, so that people understand. 
we talk to kids and we'll say, well, it's kind of like uh, water can be in liquid form and ice form and it can be uh, evaporated into the air, however you want to describe it, like those are three different uh, forms of water. Uh, some people talk about it this way, uh, where you, you have uh, one of us, for instance, me, I'm one person standing right before you. I am a father, I am a husband, and I am a son. I have, I'm one person, but with three roles. In even any of these that we come up with, or they sound good, help us to understand a little bit, but it's such a complex subject, none of them are good enough to fully encapsulate what the scripture teaches us. But I do want to give you a little bit about this Trinity doctrine, because there are people that get very uptight about it. Some will say, well, that, that term doesn't appear in the Bible. There's a lot of terms that don't appear in the Bible that are okay terms. And the Trinity tries to encapsulate a biblical teaching, but I want to give you where the Trinity concept uh, supposedly, in the minds of uh, some scholars, came from. It was back in 325 A.D. in the Council of Nicaea, and you might be familiar with the Nicene Creed, uh, but the Council of Nicaea 325 was put together by Constantine, and it's kind of an interesting time in history. A Roman emperor decided to try to get all of the known world cultures together to come up with a unified presentation of what everybody was believing. And you remember at this particular time, it wasn't called the Catholic Church. It was uh, uh, called universal, which is what Catholic means, because they were gathering. And in this Nicene um, gathering, they, they all got together and they, and they decided to come up with, this is what Christians believe. And it was covering all cultures around the world. And it was not something that anybody was protesting. Hey, government and religion shouldn't be mixing. This is bad. No, everybody thought it was a good thing, even to this day. But the creed changed uh, Constantinople. And by the way, the uh, Council of Nicaea, that happened in Turkey, what's now Turkey. If you think about that, the ramifications of, of how the world has changed since that time, like Turkey, Turkey is not exactly friendly to Christians. Things have changed a lot. But by 381 AD is when Constantinople had a revision that it pretty much represents what we see today. There are literally hundreds of other revisions all in between and thereafter. But if you've heard of the creed that basically explains what we believe, it's a Catholic creed, but a lot of people use it. The, the biggest issue I have within it is the part about um, uh, Mary, uh, uh, some Catholic doc doctrine there, Catholic doctrine about Mary. But anyway, this is when the creed came out. This is when that meeting happened. And people say that's when the Trinity doctrine came about. I do not agree with that. Uh, let me show you some things that happened before that. So first, you'll see this up behind me. Uh, this is from uh, Ignatius of Antioch in his epistle to the Magnesians in 100 AD. So that's quite a bit before the Nicene uh, meeting. And he was exhorting obedience to Christ, and the quotations are a direct quote from uh, chapter 13. There's no verses in that particular writing. Uh, Christ and to the Father and to the Spirit. See, the Trinity is there. But let me go back a little bit further. This is from Clement of Rome, who wrote to the Corinthians, and this was around 97 AD, and he said, do we not have one God and one Christ and one gracious spirit that has been poured out upon us and one calling in Christ? So those are certainly times before that emphasize a trinity, or at least a triune uh, Godhead. But that's not even where it began. Let me take you back further. Look at this verse in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is in the final statement of Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. I had a hard time finding this because I thought I had read this at the preface of one of his letters. So I read through all of the prefaces of all of his letters, which is not a huge task. And I still couldn't find it, but it was at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians. Notice 
The Father, Son, and the Spirit are all three there. But even before that, if you'll go to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice the Father, Son, and the Spirit in our great commission. So it didn't start at the Council of Nicaea. It actually started in the Bible. It's a biblical teaching. It's okay. And the reason why I bring this up is because we're told that it's God who works in us to will and act according to his good pleasure. He continues in our text with verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, I've got this broken down once again into little chunks so that we can take it piece by piece. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I do want you to kind of park that into a place in your mind so that we can get back to that, the kind of mindset that leads to grumbling and disputing. Now, it's okay to dispute. You do know this. Jesus did it. Paul did it. And all of the apostles did it and ended up being tortured for it. But you're not supposed to have that kind of spirit. You're not supposed to live a life where you're constantly grumbling and disputing. So hang on to that mentality of being a grumbler and a disputer. Verse 15, that you... Let's go back to that. I'm just taking it piece by piece. JC's very good at what he does. and I get so far ahead. He's like anticipating I'm doing that again. That you may be blameless and innocent. This is a cool phrase. This is the way God wants us to be. I was in St. Louis, Missouri. I told you a little story about that at one point in time. And after I was, I poured orange juice for everybody. There and then I poured my own cup, and then I went to drink my cup. At the bottom of the cup was a dead big roach. I'm a germaphobe. That's probably what led to that. I'm not sure, but I knew that everybody else had drank on that roach, and it was just very gross to me to think of that, oh, we all just partook of extreme germs. But it's just like you. If you were to pour water into a glass that you could see through, if it looked dusty, if it looked like there's particles in here, I'm you would have second thoughts about drinking that because it doesn't look pure. <clears throat> God wants his church, his people in his church to be pure. And that's this idea of blameless and innocent. It doesn't mean you don't do things wrong. It means that people can't tack anything on you. Meaning when you do something wrong, you're like, even if it's your kids. You know, maybe a kid says, Dad, are we supposed to do that? And it might be something that a dad might be tempted to say, look, don't, don't do what I'm doing. You know, do what I teach you. But a, an even better answer is, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't something any of us should be doing. I need to do better. And I'm sorry that I'm not. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. See, that's the thing. Somebody can't stick it to you because... Your desire is to please the Lord. And so when somebody calls you on something you're doing that's clearly not pleasing the Lord, you own it. You realize it. You change your mind. And you try to do better. That's the idea. And then it says, children of God. And notice that's purposely distinguished and set apart because that's what we're supposed to be. Always, forever learning. We are God's children eager to know what the next thing is he's wanting to teach us. Maybe there'll be an epiphany. Without blemish, that's that idea, once again, of having purity. 
It's the way God wants His bride presented without blemish. Beautiful. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, would you all agree that that's where we are right now? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Yeah. Look at the world. Look how, how, how confused it is. Look how people are cutting people off that are in their families and longtime friends. And it's, it's crazy. And people aren't reasoning. They're running with their emotions. And they're not listening. They're thinking while the, the information is still being given from the other source. And they're drawing their own conclusions before they even hear the facts. It's twisted, crooked. It's not straight. doesn't make sense. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. And that's what the whole gist of this chunk is all about. We're supposed to be shining in this dark world. Now, if we didn't have these outside windows, I could give you an illustration. So if this was a room that didn't have outside windows or lights coming in there, I could turn all the lights off and I could take a lighter or a match or a candle and light it. And there is no amount of darkness in this room that could extinguish that light. That light will be a major focal point for everyone, and it will provide depth and insight and perspective, and people will be able to actually see better because of that small source of light. This is the way we're supposed to be, Christians, in a dark world that is confused and doesn't even understand what's right in front of it that they're tripping over. When a Christian enters the room, there's depth and there's insight and there's perspective. And people might be able to see a little bit better than they did before the Christian entered their life. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. This is how we, this is how we become that light, is we live by this book. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the preacher says. doesn't matter what a teacher says. The radio evangelist or the author in that Christian book that you got from the Christian publisher what really matters is what this book says. This is the source book of life. And if we live it, then we get to be lights in a dark world. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is trying to reach out and grab a hold of us mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And he's trying every angle he can to reach out and grab a hold of us and pull us up out of our seats and say, look, don't make this all a wasted effort. I don't want my life to be in vain. I'm trying to help you. So if you understand Paul was inspired to do this, this is God that's trying as we read this off our pages or even off the wall, we read the scriptures, God is trying to reach and grab us out of our seats and say, look, I'm trying to make sure this is not a waste of time. Now, the next slide, JC. I think. You'll go ahead and click it up. Maybe I'm ahead. Oh, I am. I am ahead. All right. Let's talk about that word repent again. I want to do this in such a way that I hope this epiphany thing happens. This word repent, if, it, if you take it to a grander level where it's a big change of mind, an epiphany, a life-changing thing that actually impacts others, this could be cool. I want you to remember those No Bad Days wristbands. I have one on now. They're out there. You can take some more if you need some more. So think about it. I wear this for myself. I want to remind myself, because on the inside, it's got that very hard to read attitudes of choice. On the outside, no bad days. If I'm feeling like, okay, maybe today is not such a great day. And if I want to flip it around, then I realize, oh, it's my attitude that's causing it to be, causing me to think the way I think about what's going on today. I mean, life does sometimes throw things at you that are hard. I just learned the rest of the story of something that happened just before Christmas in my youth. I was already in high school. A girl named Tanya, who lived across the street, her last name was Foster, 
Um, the Fosters lived right across the street to the left. You could you walk out our front door, they're to the left across the street, and right across, right beside them were the Spillmans. And what happened uh, impacted me. Circumstances can impact you. I, that's the way we're all shaped. And I love hearing your stories because we, we can be shaped by other stories. So I'm telling you mine. It, it impacted me because as I was in high school, those neighbors right across the street, the patriarch in each home, um, passed away. And one of the nights, it was Mr. Spillman, I I saw lights in my room. and like, what is, what is going on? I woke up to lights, and it was from an ambulance. And they, I, I opened the front window, and I looked across the street, and I saw, I knew who he was, Mr. Spillman, going in the back of the ambulance. And I learned that as he went into the back of the ambulance, he was never going to regain his pulse. But... Maybe even more of an impact was what happened to Mr. Foster. Because that one also was an unexpected and untimely event that happened just before Christmas. And Tanya was younger. I think she was in elementary school or, or maybe even middle school. I think it was elementary school she was in at the time. But her dad told her that he was going to take her Christmas shopping to help her buy gifts for other people. She was so excited about it. And when she got pulled out of class that day before the, the winter break, she was excited because she thought, my dad's picking me up early. But instead, the news she got was, your dad has passed away. And those two events have impacted me. And especially because they happened, both of them, around the holidays, and I thought about those families, like, we're opening gifts, and we're celebrating, and what are they doing in their homes? I remember carrying a gift over to the Fosters and to the Spillmans, and I thought, I don't even know what to say. How are they doing this? I was reminded of this just recently, because one of my cousins, it's a cousin by marriage, but first cousin, married a solid Christian woman. They're very faithful to God. And Christmas Eve, they were burying her father, the patriarch of the family. And ah, I'm reminded of this. Not everybody's enjoying the holidays like I do. But Tanya Foster, the girl that lost her dad when she thought he was coming to pick her up to take her shopping, she didn't talk about it. She'd, I never heard the story until just recently she shared openly how that impacted her and words that she wanted to share with people like us. Make the most of the time you have with the people that you have around you. And she said that's how she spends her Christmases. Like she is making the most of who's here, not dwelling on who's not. Well, that's big. So I want you to think of the word repent, and maybe even with what we're going to talk about real quickly is I'm hoping that you might even have a big repent, an epiphany, maybe even a life-changing thing. I make these things, I, I, I had these, I started wearing one, someone else made one, it didn't say no attitudes of choice on the inside, but I had it made for myself, but you do know there's a bunch of them out there. They're not all for me. They're for you, too. I, I hope, because it impacts me, that it impacts you and maybe other people in your life. Because for me, it was an epiphany to learn that I don't have to have a stinky attitude. Sometimes I still do. I work on it. But I hope you can have that. So let's talk about this word repent and its relationship to an epiphany and how you can possibly um, have one. I brought this up before. I want to bring it up again. The Harvard Business Review. I've showed you a screenshot similar to this. You probably can't really read it. Uh, it goes back. It's in the 21st century, but it goes back to the beginning, um, much earlier than um, now. But it still applies. If you'll remember, the ratio that they use here 
is 5.6 to 1. Now, what is that number? That's the number that it takes to get somebody from their performance level at the job, if you say something negative to them, how, or somebody says something negative to them, how many positive things have to be said to get them back to where they were? And so I've brought this up to you before. I don't know how you do a six-tenths of an encouragement, so let's round it up to six. Six to one is a more realistic number. And, and that just brings them back to level. So if you want to take it to the next level and actually be an encouragement to people, take them to where a higher place than they were, seven to one would be the goal. And I think that's a good goal for Christians. But I also have brought up in the past how negative of a world that we live in. Have you thought about this? Most of what we see on the news or read in the news or see on social media that calls itself news is negative. We seem to gravitate to negative. Um, even in the snow, as beautiful as it is, we talk a lot about how dangerous it is and how and those are realities, but we talk about the accidents we've seen or did you hear about this and that, that um, negative stuff. We, we just tend to gravitate to that. That's who we are as people. Um, when I walked in here, I, did, I had this little habit. So I, when I come to the church, I park in the parking lot, and I don't have my dress shirt on yet. So I put it on right there behind the door. And if you're coming up and you, you happen to pull in at the same time, I'm not doing something weird. It's just what I do. I put on my dress shirt so it's not all wrinkled when I get up here. So I did that this morning. And one thing I didn't know was when I did that, there's this little tag inside my pants. I don't know if I can do this or not. Probably not. Can't find it. There's a tag, and it was hanging out. Some of you know who Minnie Pearl is, the lady that wore the hat on Hee Haw, and she always had her tag. I had this tag hanging out. If I hadn't walked in the restroom to blow my nose, because we all have COVID symptoms even if we don't have COVID, um, I went in there and looked in the mirror like, oh, there's a tag hanging out. <laughs> if you would have seen that, You'd have been focusing on that. While I'm up here preaching, you'd have been like, he's got that tag hanging out. If I had a tie on and crooked, you'd be thinking, man, somebody needs to tell him to straighten his tie. That's just the way we are. You, you come in here and you've got like a piece of food on your clothing. We're going to like be staring at that. That's what we do. But if you want to be encouraging to people, understand most people are getting bombarded with negative things. And so only one negative thing takes you want to get them above where they were, seven to one, positive things. I would like to suggest to you that let's try to make that a zero. You see this? What, what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about how about if we can eliminate our part in putting negative things in the lives of other people? Instead of being the one Remember that mindset I was talking about, about being critical and disputing? How about if we can just try to not be the one who's always being negative? Don't be the one who's taken somebody else down that somebody else in the church has to say seven things positively to get them back to where they were. How about don't interject the negative things that are unnecessary? How about that? Then we start with zero. And then everything above that is just encouragement upon encouragement. Christians, if we're going to light up the room, if we're going to be a light in the world, we've got to do better than the world is doing. And the Harvard Business Review is not a Christian organization. We can do better, I think, I hope. <laughs> but I want to... I want to talk to you about the epiphany. I want you to think about the word repent, and let's elevate it a little bit. Watch it behind me. I want, to, I want you to think about the word repent as you're thinking about what it means, change your mind. And now I want to go ahead and read that passage I just read again with the word repent up there. You ready for this? Here we go. I choose... Oh, no, no, that's not it. All right, I'm going to read it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. JC is good. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ, I may, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So the idea is you're saying, I choose to think more proactively. 
That way God's not wasting his time with these words we're reading right now. Now, I want to show you something that some of you are semi-familiar with. Uh, Oh, I didn't say that. I choose to think more proactively and selflessly. That's even better. I forgot that part. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Some of you might remember something like this because I've showed it uh, up here once. And I call this the circle of fellowship. The triangle in the middle, appropriately, represents God. You could just say um, it's representing um, God in the middle of, of life. And then you've got these two white lines that are around the circle. And in those two white lines, that's representing, that would be where, and I didn't put it today, koinonia. That's a word for communion and for fellowship. You've got arrows that are on the outside. So if you leave the circle of fellowship, then, in other words, if you violate Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 to 27, you actually are distancing from God. If you stop meeting with other Christians, you necessarily are distancing from God. And Hebrews says you can become an enemy of God. But if you stay within the circle of fellowship, in other words, you continue to meet with other Christians, this pulls you closer to God. Anybody remember this analogy? So now I want to superimpose it over Uh, something else in a minute. Not yet, JC. All right. I want to talk to you about uh, stinky people. Fortunately, there is nobody in this church I can say at this point in time that I have walked up to and thought, oh my goodness, there's a body odor problem. I'm very thankful for that. But all of us have been around people that for one reason or another have that problem. Maybe they haven't been able to have a shower for a long time. But let's just talk about people who can and don't take care of their personal hygiene and the people you think of in your own mind. I'm not trying to get you to focus on anybody that, uh, that, you, don't, that you dislike. But I don't, I've, I'm part of a, right now as I'm working on my higher education, I'm actually going through credentialing in these personality um, traits and basically uh, maybe you've seen these things where they categorize people into uh, types of people like uh, most of the time they divide them up into four different brackets of uh, typical um, tendencies of people there's literally over a hundred different ways to do that different studies and different schools of thought But almost universally, the oblivious people, the stinky people, always go into the oblivious category. In other words, people that don't realize they have a body odor problem, um, they're oblivious that they don't know that everybody else realizes they have a body odor problem. I had the unfortunate privilege of talking to someone that saw me as a mentor and when I talked to him, I had to talk to him and say, look, I don't think you understand. It's a serious problem, and it's causing issues with your effectiveness as a Christian because you get close to people, and people smell that, and they just want to be away. It's repulsive. And he said to me, that's not very nice. I think it wouldn't be nice if, if I never talked to you about it because... I see other people's reaction when it happens. So I'm talking to you one-on-one as a friend. And he said, well, how come my parents have never said anything like that to me? And I said, well, let me ask you this. You've, you've been around my parents, and I've been around your parents, yeah. So do your parents ever, you ever notice a body odor problem with your parents? Yes. You ever notice a body odor problem with my parents or anybody else's parents? No. And the good thing is, after that horrible conversation I did not want to have, my friend fixed the problem. But he was oblivious. He didn't know. He didn't realize everybody else knew, but he didn't know. 
I'm thankful when people confront me about things that everybody else knows going on, whether it's my tag hanging out or whatever else is bigger problem. I'm thankful if somebody talks to me about it so I can at least evaluate and see if I need to change. But I want to tell you the reality is some people who are repulsive do not know that they're repulsive. Some people get repulsed just by the fact that somebody notices that there are repulsive people because they don't want to look at themselves. They'd rather pin nitpick others. Let me show you something. Uh, this is an image that might be familiar to you. This is Scrooge, just Jim Carrey as Scrooge in an animated movie. Maybe you watched it this Christmas. But if you remember the story, Scrooge is oblivious to the fact that he makes everyone miserable around him. <clears throat> and maybe he's not so oblivious. Maybe he likes it that way. But whatever the case, he learns eventually that he needs to change, which is why this story is so good that it ends that way. But I want to show you what it looks like, just in case you're one of these that is highly bothered by the fact that the preacher just talked about stinky people from the stage. So this is what happens with re repulsive people. Those little blue dots represent people. They don't want to be around somebody like that, whether it's a stinky person or a stinky attitude person, if it, whether it's a, a boss that, and, that just likes to be harsh with his or her employees. People don't want to be around that boss. Or if it's uh, the husband, it's just negative, 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 just nitpicky about everything all the time because nobody else could do it as good as he can. Or if it's the wife that the husband could legitimately say, she's a nag. He can be too, by the way. But these kinds of people that are oblivious to their repulsiveness oftentimes don't realize it until it's too late. And their family, their friends, their co-workers don't want to be around them. It doesn't feel good. But I want to show you a different image. So I replaced the image of Scrooge with the image of the empty tomb. And this would represent somebody who believes in the empty tomb because that is our hope, is in Jesus, who conquered death. The empty tomb is a great thing. The Christmas story culminates with the resurrection story. So Jesus rose from the dead, and we feel good about that. And if we're living our lives in such a way that people know we live with genuine, a genuine belief of hope, then I want to show you these blue dots and how they respond. You see that? It's magnetic. You see, if you take the magnets and you get them the wrong way, they repulse each other. But if they're the right way, they draw near to each other. Now, let me give you this concept because sometimes we're oblivious. Sometimes we don't even realize we are turning people off by our behaviors, by our attitudes, and people are repulsed by us, just like the Scrooge. But you know people that you've been drawn to, people that you just love to be near. You want to be like that, right? You want to be the kind of person that people, when they walk away, they're glad they were near you. You don't want to be the kind of person that saps the energy out of others. You know people like this, don't you? You can just talk to them on the phone and they can just suck the energy right out of you like, oh, drains me. I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person that people love to be around, love to talk to, because I want to draw people to Jesus. And that's what this analogy is about. Let me show you something. Let's superimpose that fellowship circle over this. Watch this. See up behind me? See what happens? When you are drawing people because of your faith, you are necessarily pulling them into a Christian atmosphere and drawing them closer to God. That's what they're feeling. They may not know it. They may not recognize it. But when you are living out God's instruction book for life in front of them and they're drawn to what you have, they are drawn to Jesus in you. Remember me talking about that epiphany? That's what needs to be happening right about now. It's the very people who are repulsed by the idea that the preacher would talk about sometimes people stink and need to stop stinking, that they focus on that instead of, hey, wait a minute, 
Maybe it's me with a stinky attitude. I'm the one nitpicking. If you want to be the kind of person that draws people to Christ, be the kind of person that purposely thinks in a way that is pleasing to him. So, I have these little no bad days wristband things made because I hope that it helps others. I want to be the kind of person that draws people closer to Christ. Not to me, but Christ in me so that they can come to know him and and I can please the Lord. More people will come to know him. That's the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be a repulsive person that drives people away from Christ. I want to be the kind of person that draws people to him. So I have to live in such a way that's more pleasing to him. I have to think in such a way that's more pleasing to him. And here's that Another way that this epiphany can happen in your mind, a changing of your mind. Some of us can think back in our history and we can think of people that, well, they used to get under our skin for this or that, some things they did or some things they said or whatever, and it, they, it bothered us. And so we used to think of them in a different way. And time goes by and oftentimes we forget about the negatives and we focus on the good and we start thinking more fondly of them because we're not being as critical as we once were. Can I suggest to you that it's possible that you can stop thinking more critical of other people now? Can I suggest to you that you could actually change your mind and you can determine to think of other people the way Paul has expressed the way he thinks of the Philippians when he said, I thank God every time I think of you. Is it possible we could think that way about our Christian brothers and sisters instead of the negative things we could choose to focus on about them, we actually think of all of the delightful, positive things where we see Jesus in them in this way, we see Jesus in that way. I love my Christian brothers and sisters. Can we possibly have an epiphany, change our minds, and not wait for time to make it happen, but purposely in our own minds choose to not be so ready to grumble and dispute? Not be a nitpicker, not be a repulsive person, but be a person that builds other people up. I don't know if you noticed, those magnetic personalities that we love to be around, those are people that make us feel better. Have you noticed? We would prefer to be around people that make us feel better. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but those kinds of people are the kind of people that build us up. And if you want to be that kind of person... You've got to be about the business of building up rather than tearing down. And Paul is talking about being unified, being lights in the world. If you want to bring depth and perspective that draws people to Christ, you've got to have that kind of attitude. Our final part of the text says, you can go ahead and click that. Thanks, JC. Philippians 2.17 and following, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, we don't know, and there's a lot of different theologians that believe that the Philippians thought that Paul was being punished in part by something that they had something to do with because of this last section. Because when you pour out a drink offering, what that's doing is you're giving an offering to God. You pour it out. It's it looks wasteful to other people, but it's the way you give it to God. This, this drink could be of a great monetary value and even a, a health value to the body, but it's being poured out. And it seems wasteful, but it's an offering to God. Paul doesn't want his life to be a waste. God doesn't want these words to be a waste. But even if Paul is going, even if they perceive him to be sacrificing himself and his life, even as he is in jail, for their faith, I want you to be happy upon happiness. I want you to have joy upon joy. That's that word rejoice. And that's what God wants for us. And if we're going to stretch out, you know how Christmas seems to bring out the best in people, like it did us when we did that huge offering to that pizza guy, that was so cool. If Christmas brings out the best in people, and Christmas didn't have to end on December 21st, it actually, you know, goes all the way to January 6th, the day of Epiphany, the 12th day of Christmas, where the realization of what Jesus came for 
came to fruition to the Magi, even today we could have an epiphany and we could realize, you know what? Christmas doesn't have to bring out the best in us only at Christmas. This can happen after Christmas. I hope it happens with us and I hope that we will become, if we're not already, I hope that we become a light in our community like never before. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for reaching down to us with your word and pulling us up and shaking us a little bit and saying, hey, you got to change your minds. God, thank you for that. Help us to realize all the areas that we need to work on. Help us to change the things we need to change so that we can light the world that is so dark right now. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.